Good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Betsy. I'm a member here, and I will be reading our sermon scripture passage this morning. Um, so today we're in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. Um, so I invite you to follow along in your Bible or up on the screen. If you need a Bible, we do have some um, in the back that you can keep as our gift to you. So once again, we're reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man who was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Betsy. Good morning, everyone. Let's try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. I am going to set the timer. Steve said I only had 35 minutes. told him it was going to be like three hours, and he said... uh, well, I'm glad to see you. It's great to be here. I, it is my honor and privilege to be here to deliver the sermon to you this morning. And I want to start with um, greetings from Portico Arlington. We think fondly of you. And we wish you well. We're, we're delighted that you're in this space and growing. Um, if we could go to Dream State for a minute, wouldn't it be amazing if our both of our churches grew to the point that we were multiplying and there was a portico or a doxology in every zip code in Arlington, Virginia? Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, if we could do that, we would change Arlington County. And if we can change Arlington County, we can change the world because we are in the epicenter of power for the entire planet here in the nation's capital. I also want to commend to you, and I hope that you're encouraging to your pastor. We're very fond of him at Portico, 
And so I hope you esteem him well. I know you probably do. But I just um, please encourage him. It is not easy being a pastor. It's, it's, it can be hard sometimes. So pray for him. Remember to pray for him. So we're reading. We're, we're, the sermon today is on Matthew 12. And my sights for the sermon, basically if I had to cite everything I mentioned, I would be citing the whole thing. So um, if there's something that I bring up and you're wondering where I got that, just know everything was gotten from somewhere else. Nothing is going to be an original thought. Um, if I skip... Um, referring to the original source. Just come talk to me afterwards. Primarily, it's going to be taken from Bible Study Fellowship. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's a non-denominational Reformed Bible study. I highly commend it to you. I did that for a number of years, and they have one year, an entire study dedicated to the book of Matthew. And another place I'll draw heavily from is Matthew Henry's commentary. I love Matthew Henry's commentary. I commend that to you as well. It's available for free online. All right, so imagine if we lived in Jesus' day and we were able to watch him, observe him, what he would be like. First of all, wouldn't that be amazing? We have the Bible, but just something about being in his presence. I think if we had the ability to watch him for very long, we would be surprised with how welcoming he was. He would be glad and delighted to see you. Can you imagine that? Every time he saw you, he would be delighted to see you. He would also, you would, be, you would note how kind and caring he was. To the point that if you could compare him with anybody else that walked on the planet in the history of the world, you would have to determine he was the most kind, caring person you had ever, ever met. Now, that's not hyperbole. That's who our God is. Why would we want to serve anyone else? So Jesus, this Jesus we speak of, he's walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples are hungry. He permits them to take grain and to eat. But the Pharisees say, whoa, 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 you're breaking the law. So what's going on here? The grain fields first. They did not have an issue with the disciples plucking the grain. If they would have done that on the next day of the week, they would have been fine with it. It was the fact they were plucking them on the Sabbath. The Old Testament provided for wanderers through the country, the poor travelers, provided for the farmers not to reap their fields all the way to the edges so that people might gather gain, uh, grain. Um, it was a way of demonstrating that Israel as a nation was charitable. It was in their DNA. The law reflects the heart of God. And there was a law that said, don't reap your fields all the way to the edges. And so that's what's going on there. They're doing it on the Sabbath. Now, what is the Sabbath? In Genesis 2, and this is before the fall, God blesses the seventh day and he makes it holy. And he sets it apart. Now, if you look across the Ten Commandments, he also codifies maintaining the Sabbath and honoring the Sabbath in the Fourth Commandment when Moses comes down off the mountain and delivers the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. It's also codified in the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You shall not work, you, your manservant, your maidservant. If you look across the Ten Commandments, 
I believe that this is one that Christians, well-intentioned people, frequently omit. And I would say that's not who we are supposed to be as Christians. So the first thing I want to do to encourage you today is to remember to obey all the commandments. And this is an important one. And Jesus here in this passage affirms the Sabbath day. The Israelites, when they were hauled out of Israel to Babylon in exile, primarily it was because they were violating the Sabbath command. John Calvin writes, The Lord enjoined obedience to no other command as severely as to Sabbath-keeping. When he wills through the prophets to indicate that all religion has been overturned, he complains that his Sabbaths have been polluted, violated, not kept, not hallowed, as if, with this homage omitted, nothing more remained in which he could be honored. And so they spent 70 years in Babylon, later Persia, because they failed to keep the Sabbath primarily. So it's a big deal in the culture of Israel. It's a big deal in Christianity. If it's something you struggle with or you wonder, why do I need to take it so seriously? I would encourage you to read Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 56. Isaiah is pleading with the Israelites before they are hauled off to Babylon. And he's talking about the Sabbath. So read that. Let it convict you. We are to, we are to, we are to honor God on the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, abstaining from work. But fortunately, Jesus is going to give us more clarity on this. It's not as onerous as you would think. But the Pharisees had difficulty in accepting that Jesus allowed his disciples to pluck grain. Now, what was going on there, and who were the Pharisees? When the Israelites went into bondage and then they came back out, there were groups that sprung up to help protect the Israelites and to protect the law. And one of those groups was the Pharisees. So they had been around for a significant number of time. And what they did was they wanted to protect the law. On the one hand, you had the Sadducees, who their primary goal was to protect the temple. That's what they felt was important. But the Pharisees, their goal was to protect the law. Because when you're living in exile, you don't have the temple, so you have to worship God as best you can, given the circumstances that an outside force is controlling you right now. So what they did in terms of elevating the law, they had a system of oral tradition, or we could look at it as a commentary, side by side the law. And over time, this commentary grew and grew in importance to the point that eventually the oral tradition superseded the law. So that's a problem. But I think in reading passages in the New Testament, we should cut the Pharisees a lot of slack. We are here in a dark room on a Sunday morning in Washington, D.C. Aren't we a little bit weird, don't you think? The whole rest of D.C. is at a coffee shop right now, and we're in this room talking about Scripture. Right? Doesn't that make us weird? So if we lived in the New Testament times, in Jesus' day, we too would have been zealous for God's word, and we would have probably identified more heavily with the Pharisees than we think. 
And so when you read Scripture, it's very easy to import yourself into the body of text, identifying with the hero, isn't it? Don't we commonly do that? But I would encourage you as you read Scripture, start importing yourself into Scripture as the villain. And allow the Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit, am I like this person who is antagonistic to you? And you'll be surprised. The Holy Spirit will convict you. And that's a good thing. Because when we are convicted, it's an opportunity for God to deal with our sin, to help us, free us from our sin. And we get to be closer to God, which is where we always are trying to go. So the Pharisees take objection to this. They're upset. They had a rule that you were not supposed to carry the weight of more than two dried figs. So their rules were way, way out of control. Jesus here sets about a desire to help them interpret Scripture correctly, and they don't quite appreciate this. Jesus was good about doing that. He did this earlier in Matthew 5. Surprisingly, they had too loose of an interpretation in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus provides a much stricter interpretation of Scripture. If you have lust in your heart, you committed adultery. If you have hatred of another person in your heart, you're violating, you're violating the commandment against committing murder. Right? So Jesus fixes our interpretation on both sides, too loose and too strict. But here, it's way too loose. So he seeks, he seeks, he sets about to give them a correct way to look at this. So they've accused the disciples of breaking the law, serious offense, and he says to them, he gives them this example of David. David, who was he? He was the second king of Israel. He was on the lamb. He had been an anointed king, but he had not yet received the crown. His existing king was Saul. And David was on the lamb. He was starving, he and his men, and he cared for his men, and so he was trying to provide sustenance for them. Similarly, parallel, Jesus cares for his disciples. Who knows where they were going? They probably were going to the synagogue and maybe had not had time to eat that morning due to a ministry need that came up or something, but he permits them to to pluck grains. Meanwhile, David goes to the temple. They're starving. And he asks the priest, do you have any food? He says, no, all I have is the bread of the presence. Now, what is that? So in the holy place of the tabernacle were loaves of bread, 12 loaves, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And only the priest, there was a prohibition against anyone else eating the bread. And the priests were supposed to change it out every seven days on the Sabbath, and then they only could eat it. So this is all the priest had, and he gave it to David, and David eats the bread and is held blameless, though he's violating the law. So what is going on there? Hold that thought. So the next example he gives is that on the Sabbath, the priests are doing a whole lot of work. On the Sabbath day, the, the um, sacrifices double. And so if you can imagine the temple or the tabernacle, the ritual process of sacrificial system, There would have been a courtyard. The animals would have been brought into the courtyard, and it would have been like a giant slaughterhouse. It would have been a ton of work. 
And so they slaughtered the animals and then put them on the altar. And the altar was to maintain, was to be burning 24 seven. So maintaining the fire, the whole process would have been an enormous amount of work. Yet they did that on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath. Jesus says they profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. How is that possible? Violation of the same law that the Pharisees are accusing the disciples of violating. Also, Jesus says, have you not read? Now, who are these people? These are the Pharisees. Not only have they read it, they probably had the whole thing memorized. This would be like me having a debate with a Supreme Court justice about the Constitution saying, have you never read the Constitution, right? These people knew it like the back of their hand. The Pharisees were turning what was supposed to be a day of blessing, the Sabbath day, where we honor God, a day of blessing into a day of deprivation, a a day of burden. And God, in his graciousness to us, he allows this to happen so that we can have clarity on his heart what he really truly intends. David also says, or Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And likewise, you can make this analogy in the first section, in the first part about David. Jesus was a greater authority than David, and he's here. He's greater than the temple. Tell me, so if you are going to the temple to worship God, Who's more important to worship, the temple and temple sacrifices or the God who you're supposed to worship in the temple? And yet they are talking and hearing from God who's speaking them directly to their face. Jesus, by the way, if you look back up just a few verses ahead that you've already covered, If you look up in chapter 11 in verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father. He is at this point, supreme ruler. He's sovereign. He has perfectly within his rights to totally do away with any law, to edit the law, to change it or to affirm it. But what he does is he doesn't do away with it. He affirms it and he highlights and gives us help and understanding now you have you have the um apparent contradiction of disobedience to the law but yet being held guilty so what's going on in scripture there is a higher law so if you take the law that was given to the israelites moses comes down off the mountain There are sort of three sets of law that were given to the Israelites. The first is civil law. This is law that pertained to how their government was to be structured and organized. This doesn't apply to us today, though there may be principles in how their government was structured that we can derive in terms of what would be good principles for running a government. There was the ritual law, how the temple system and sacrifices were to be conducted because Jesus came and because he died and because he's a better sacrifice. The ritual law was fulfilled. And then there was the moral law, how you should behave and conduct yourself as it relates to other people. That still is in effect. If you take all of the moral law, you can condense it down into the Ten Commandments. 
So you might say you have the moral law, then you have the Ten Commandments here. So that if you understand the Ten Commandments, you understand the heart of what is meant and intended in the moral law. And then Jesus is asked later in Matthew, what is the most important commandment? And he says, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your spirit and all your strength. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So he takes the ten and gives us two. So it sort of forms this pyramid. You have a higher law. The highest law is to love God and our neighbor. And so if something below that seems to be a contradiction, our first obligation is to the highest law. And here you have the disciples who are serving God who created heaven and earth. Their obligation is to him first and foremost. And so therefore, if because something greater than the temple is here, if you knew what you were talking about, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So Jesus defends them. And so what he does here is, in essence, on the Sabbath, we can think of it as this Puritan thing, right? But we should embrace it with joy and as a privilege. Jesus permits work here that is intended for the preserving of life, and he, per- he permits work that advances Sabbath worship. So you setting up here, doing lots of work, it's a lot of work to set up for churches, isn't it? That is totally permitted on the Sabbath. So next, in the next portion of Scripture, he enters their synagogue. So he's not undeterred, right? He's not, he doesn't operate based on fear. Tension has now been um, increased in their relationship. He's called them out publicly and made them look bad, but yet he does not, he's, he doesn't operate out of fear. If we could do that, Imagine if every decision you make, if no decision you made was controlled by fear. Wouldn't that be amazing? We could be free of fear, and he was free of fear. May we be like him. Jesus enters his synagogue, enters their synagogue. Who's the Pharisees? So while the Sadducees were focused on the temple and primarily Jerusalem, the Pharisees were out amongst the common people, and they were considered more relatable, more common, if you will, while the Pharisees, the Sadducees were elite and wealthy. And so the Pharisees, their domain typically were the synagogues, right? Where they led worship, taught, taught, and taught with their oral tradition. So Jesus, though, is willing to confront them in their base of operation, so to speak. And here we have a man with a withered hand. Maybe you've seen someone their hand is up close, and maybe it's paralysis by, from birth or who knows what. This man is unable to use one of his hands. So he is at a severe economic disadvantage compared to you or I or compared to others in society. And Jesus has compassion on him. And whether Jesus approached him proactively or whether the man approached him in the synagogue— The Pharisees know what he's doing because he's so good and he's so kind and he's been healing people left and right. He sees people with needs and he wants to help them. And he's on his way to heal this guy, but they interrupt him with the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Were they interested in learning from Jesus? 
No, it says, so that they might accuse him. Matthew Henry says he is the fittest, he, Jesus, is the fittest teacher worthy of our questions if those questions are born out of a desire to learn. One of the things I've learned as I've grown as a Christian is that Jesus enjoys talking to us. We can talk to him about anything. He's relational. He wants to hear your problems. He wants to entertain your questions. Go to him in prayer. Now, just like in the previous passage, the Pharisees had added to Scripture with additional work. They were adding here, too, with their additional oral traditions, which were so burdensome and so cruel in effect. Medically, they advocated that it was okay to prevent someone from worsening if they had a medical condition that was a problem. So it's okay to prevent them from, from getting worse, but what you could not do is help someone get better on the Sabbath. How awful is that? Jesus, who's concerned about everyone getting better all the time, Sabbath or not, he approaches him, intent on healing, and then is accused with this question. And he says, which of you has a sheep? So what he does is he immediately he exposes their selfishness and their greed because when it affects their property, their property, they're all about saving that property on the Sabbath day. But here you have a human being who is of much greater worth than an animal because this person has a soul and this is a person who can know God and can learn of God and can praise him. We should be more concerned about a soul than the sheep. So he calls them out because Christ is the true shepherd that comes to save the lost of Israel. So in spite of this intense persecution that he was about to receive, he heals him. His mercy, his compassion, his obedience that the Father's will overruled any desire to compromise. Do we act in a way where our first and foremost concern is what is God's will? Or do we allow ourselves to compromise? Another Matthew Henry quote, Duty is not to be left undone, nor opportunities of doing good neglected for fear of giving offense. We should operate concerned first and foremost by what God thinks and not man. Now, in his bringing balance to this portion of Scripture, Jesus um, establishes here, doing well is lawful, including healing. And so we too, we have much liberty on the Sabbath day, but we should keep it as holy. Let's spend a second on the the man with the withered hand. Spiritually, we're like him. We are incapable of using our hand for any good, but yet God, Christ, bids us to reach out and to grab hold of him in faith. And Christ only, by his grace, cures our withered hand, our withered souls, doesn't he? This man could not stretch out his hand, yet Christ bid him to do it. And likewise, in faith, when we stretch out our hand in salvation, we do it on Christ's strength alone. 
Now, if this man had not stretched out his hand, he would not have been healed. Think about that. If he had not stretched forth his hand in obedience to Christ, he would not have been healed. Therefore, those who perish are just as inexcusable as this man would have been if he had failed to do what Christ commanded. But all at the same time, those of us who are saved may no more boast in our salvation than this man can boast in his and contributing to his own cure. So what do the Pharisees do? They go out and they intend to destroy him. See how cruel they were. It's severe indignity that the man who was the greatest blessing to the nation, they were now intent on running down and running him out of town. So Jesus withdraws to the outer edges. Many followed him and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. So this is, an, this is a matter of practicality. Jesus was very practical. I feel that one of the things that Christians need to realize is we have a great deal of liberty to be way more pragmatic, way more practical than we think due to our freedom in Christ. So Jesus knew they were after them. After him, he didn't panic, but he continued to go about doing great good at great risk. And he withdraws, and he doesn't withdraw by some miracle where he is like teleported away. He withdraws in a very ordinary way and submits to the hardships and the indignities that all humans suffer. We have a God who knows what it's like to suffer as a human being. Why would you want to serve any other God? So he had to strike a balance of usefulness and privacy. This was done in order to be very prudent. Likewise, we should not seek to exasperate those who would want to provoke us or seek an occasion against us. We must be wise as serpents. And this is also an act of humility and self-denial. Christ would have us be the reverse of all those who do their works to be seen of men. That's the Pharisees. We need to be different. So in the last section, in God's, God's chosen servant, Behold my servant in whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Do you see how pleased the Father, the Father was with him? Jesus was God's servant who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But yet we, when we are born, when we come out of the womb, we are grasping for power. We are grasping to be on the throne. We need to act with self-denial just like Jesus did. He also, this is amazing, if anybody had a right to proclaim himself, it was Jesus. But in verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. He will not hear, and nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He was so self-effacing, so humble, turning down the possibility of all public acclaim. Imagine so many people would have been coming to him, but he tamped down the publicity that he was getting. In D.C., if someone starts to get noticed, we naturally say, leverage that publicity for all it's worth. And Christ did the opposite because he trusted his father to take care of his future. May we be like him. And as we, as we um, wrap up, verses 20 and 21, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the gentiles will hope 
Notice how patient he was in dealing with the following people, the Pharisees. He could have called down fire from heaven on them, how, how awful they treated him, yet he did nothing but bring good to the entire nation. People everywhere were being healed, but because they were more concerned with their pride and their station in life, they wanted to run him away. A bruised reed he will not break in spite of the fact he could do so. Notice how patient he is with the people too. If you just scroll up in the verse 20, uh, excuse me, in um, uh, chapter 11, he goes through the woes. People were being healed. And in spite of the fact they were being healed, they were not repenting. And he was like, whoa, whoa. In spite of the fact people were not being healed, he's still not not repenting and recognizing him as God. He still was kind to them. He's so kind. He does not discourage or reject. And in spite of numerous, countless failings, he uplifts the broken down, the trodden down, and he supports them. And he supports us. He's extraordinarily tender, though we be exceptionally weak, remembering that we are but dust. Just wait till you, if you're not 40 yet, at some point you grow older and you realize your helplessness in fixing the world. You have your one or two breakdowns and you realize you are insignificant, but he lifts us up. He comes to give us a greater Sabbath, a Sabbath rest, a rest from the world because he's so caring. He gives us rest from our enemies. And most importantly, he gives us rest from our sin. In a word, he's the most kind and caring person you would ever hope to meet. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. In his name, sinners will hope. And he died for us on a cross that we might be free. Let us pray.